the last number of months, we have engaged in probably the most foundational teaching series for us over the last couple of years. And it's been super good, like super engaging with people as far as uh, discussion throughout the week in our community. We host a, a midweek community, and the conversation that came out of that through the things that we've been talking about the last number of months have been really good. Um, if you don't know, we were in a series uh, called From Redemption to Recycling, basically just throwing everything on the table. And now uh, we're going to kind of switch gears, but it was so good over those months to engage topics like sex, power, money, creation care, the creation accounts, um, all sorts of stuff in there. And it's all online if you want to engage with that stuff. But I think it was really good as we landed, even the last couple of weeks talking about should women, women be pastors to the Me Too movement, to violence in the Old Testament. We just kind of thrown it all out there. Now, there's something beautiful there is something beautiful about our minds and our hearts really being engaged. Would you agree? I think many of you guys, um, this has been the story of the last few months. As we switch gears, um, I don't think that has to stop. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to start a journey this morning. That's going to be a, a pretty long journey. And over the next six to eight months, we are going to be walking through the liturgical church calendar. So here's what we're going to do. We've been like, had these super engaging like talks, and now we're going to kind of settle ourselves, and we're going to take some time as a community and walk through the church calendar. Many of you may not know, because most of us in this room are very low church. Come on, somebody. It's just true. Most of us in this room, and what I mean by low church is um, high church typically has liturgy, um, Bishops, elders, different things in communities. I think of the Anglican and Episcopacate. Help me out. Thank you. I had to drum this morning at the last minute, okay? Our drummer was sick, okay? So I'm sweating under my arms. It's got to be a little bit of grace. I haven't drummed in like a year, all right? So that's, yeah. Um, some of the, our brothers and sisters, I even think of our Catholic friends, um, are led by a lectionary. And we read the lectionary every week here. Um, they're led also by the church calendar. And um, that's beautiful. There's very high church communities. We would be kind of obviously low church um, in, the, in our approach, but have tried to take liturgical elements and combine them as kind of what we would call a eucharismatic community. And one of the things that we've wanted to do over the last little while is at least once, I thought when we, when we switched to praxis, at least once we would want to take our community through this calendar and follow the lectionary for our teachings on Sundays and really live out the story of God as it draws us into the different seasons in the church calendar. So last Sunday, the season of Advent started, which is really the beginning of the church calendar uh, for Christians. Uh, many Christians follow this. Um, I just want to say Happy New Year to you, because typically uh, Christians that follow the church calendar believe that this is kind of the beginning of the season. Certainly, we have our cultural calendar of January 1st, and everybody's going to be excited for that. But what I want to do is just lead us through this and then just start us in Advent with the text for this morning. Sound like a plan? Now here, I don't think this has to be, here's the thing, I do not think that this has to be any less engaging than what we've been through. You know, again, we've put some really hot stuff, people, questions that people are asking on the table, and there's something beautiful about that, but there's also something beautiful about for the next number of months, slowing down, taking a deep breath, and being rooted in something that's bigger than ourselves. So the church calendar, it kind of looks like this. This is, a, I think, a good, legit uh, kind of picture and image of what the church calendar is. 
and gives you a snapshot of the different seasons, starting with Advent there on the left side. Advent is a four Sundays. The word Advent means, simply means coming. It's this preparation season, which we're in right now, and we're going to engage in over the next few weeks, for Christmas and the coming of Jesus, but also this deep longing within us for the second coming of Jesus, because we know as we're players in this story that it's kind of like we know the end of the story and are anticipating Jesus' second coming. So the next, it started last week, we had our party, but over the next four weeks through Advent, I guess three weeks left, into Christmas, we're going to take time to anticipate and to engage this season. Then um, we're going to have Christmas, obviously. December 25th in the calendar is, is Christmas. But Christmas in the church calendar, and you've heard me talk about this in past years, is actually 12 days. The time between Jesus' birth and when the Magi come to Jesus is a 12-day period. And so one of the things we celebrate is Christians actually that follow the calendar, some of them will do 12 gifts over 12 days and spread it out over the season. So Christians believe that the 12 days of Christmas make up the amount of time, again, it took from Jesus to the Magi or the wise men to travel to Bethlehem. And so actually in January, the, uh, the first Sunday in January is actually going to be the 12th day of Christmas for us, and we'll take time as we uh, wrestle through that text on that morning to kind of conclude Christmas in January according to the church calendar. Then the next season is this thing called Epiphany. Epiphany is simply the manifestation of Christ the Gentiles as represented by the Magi. So you read that story in Matthew 2, this mind-blowing, earth-shattering idea that Jesus, the story of Jesus would be for those who are not Jewish. And I think in this room, pretty much all of us are thankful for that, right? This mind-blowing reality that this gospel now and this news embodied in a person would go farther than just to the Jewish people, which obviously held you know, a monotheistic kind of view in their head of Yahweh and God. Now this idea is that Jesus has come for the entire world. So the Feast of Epiphany kicks off. It's a Christian feast day that celebrates the revelation of God to the Gentiles through Jesus. And we'll take that season um, of Epiphany before Lent to talk through these texts and look at these texts around how God's kingdom breaks in to average normal people like us. Then the next uh, season is the preparation season called Lent. You've heard of Lent if you've been around the community for a number of years. This is a time where we take, uh, especially as a community, take time to fast and intentional fasting. I really see fasting through the season as a non-negotiable. And fasting is actually a little different than abstaining. We've talked, we'll talk more about that. People will tend to abstain certain things through this 40-day period leading up to Easter. We're also gonna take some time to be together on Ash Wednesday, which is the beginning of Lent and the season. Then there's Holy Week. As you know, Holy Week is a big week in the calendar. This encapsulates Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem including his triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. Uh, Jesus then celebrates his, the Passover with his disciples. Uh, you know, Monday, Thursday, maybe you've been to gatherings of feet washing. His death on the cross on Good Friday, we're going to have, again, as a community, we're going to try this year to have a hike in Warbler Woods if the weather is good for us. Holy Saturday, we'll take some time and quiet, and then obviously Resurrection Sunday for us is massive as we celebrate an empty tomb. Are you with me? This is why we exist, which is amazing. Then... A lot of people don't know, from Resurrection Sunday, 
Easter is like actually a six-week period. It's called Eastertide. And again, you've heard some of this before, but we'll take six weeks to celebrate Easter, not just one day. Obviously, the reality of an empty tomb is like amazing, and we get together, and we all, some of you wear pastels, and we have baptisms and all that. It's great on Easter Sunday. But what we're trying to embed into some of us is a whole season of resurrection, uh, the day of ascension, 40 days after Easter, and then we'll end our time walking through these things with the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Easter. We're going to celebrate the giving of the Spirit on that Sunday. Sound like a plan? You with me? So here's the thing. My, okay, so like as we continue to be a community that wants to engage the church with the culture, but as well wants to be this Eucharismatic community, um, we're trying to blend these things. To be honest, I like tight jeans and Chuck Taylors. Anybody with me? It's just, who, anybody else with me? No, anyway, some of you are like, that's lame. I don't, you know, I think that we're trying to hold on to certain things, but we don't have to throw the baby, it's an odd term, but we don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. That's a horrible term, isn't it? We should never say that ever. That's horrible. But you know what I'm saying. We're trying, we're one of the few, and I don't mean this arrogantly, but we're one of the few communities that's trying to be, I hate the word relevant, but trying to engage the culture while still hold on to our roots. So here's what I want to do before we jump into today's text. You hanging in there? I want to try and convince you that this is important. Because I know you're thinking about the bills at 1 o'clock, big game. Or you got Christmas shopping, and there's things you need to do, and there's all sorts of things flooding your minds right now. But why should we care about the liturgical church calendar? Why should you, 2,000 years later, does this really, like really, some of these practices, does it really matter? Let me give you just, there's more reasons than I can give you, but here's a few reasons why I think. One, it draws us into the story of God. So what we're going to do over the next six months or so is we're, I, I think there's tons of room for engaging certain topics, but what we're actually going to do over the next little while is actually be drawn into this great story. So here's the thing. I'm learning as I hit almost 40. I'm hitting my late 30s. There's gray hairs popping every day, which is just like amazing and depressing all at once. I don't have a lot of time, and we don't have a lot of time as a church community to simply create passive spectators in the church. My life is going by way too freaking fast to just peddle a few people that come and watch a show. That's not what we're here for. We're here to draw people into the story, and I actually think following the church calendar over the next little while is going to draw us into the beauty of who God is. Even if we just do it once, I know we read the text every week, but even if we do this once, the rhythm from Advent into Epiphany, into a season of longing at Lent where we're abstaining and preparing for Easter, and then the celebration of eating and feasting during Eastertide, and then to Pentecost Sunday where the Spirit is given. I think as people, we need to be drawn into this beautiful story, and we need to practice it. And so I want to give you guys, we want to give you the real thing. I just don't want like cotton candy Christianity, come sing a few songs and then go. I, we want actually all of us to be drawn in to this beautiful story. Two, here's the thing. It keeps us rooted in something that's bigger than ourselves. So that's the intention of reading the psalm from the lectionary every week is, can I just remind, and you know this, we didn't just get here out of nowhere, and that's the tension with a lot of modern, current-day evangelical church plants. Boom, we're here, and we're amazing, and we got a really good worship leader and a good-looking one, too. He's really good, right? He's so, so good-looking, just so muscular and good-looking. It's good. You guys know, if you've been around, my concerns for the church in our moment and simply trying to be cool. 
Like, let's just get our gatherings to look cool and amazing. I think most of us, if you've been around, realize that, the, that our culture is way beyond paying any attention to a church that's trying to be cool. It really is. We have to, we have to offer the world something completely countercultural. And one of the things we have to do is we have to do that in a rootedness. There are people that have gone before us, millions of Christians that have walked before us and have practiced this, and when we, when we engage in something larger than ourselves, like the church calendar, it keeps us rooted uh, than simply trying to be the coolest thing on the block. We are actually trying to, I'm doing everything we can to avoid from that. And then three, here's what it does. It gives us stability in an unstable world, right? When we root ourselves in something that guides us as kind of a common rule, it gives us stability as a community in a very unstable world. And you know that the world is unstable right now, right? Just flip on the news for about two minutes, the 24-hour news cycle, and you know we are in a world of chaos right now. And when we have a rule that's over us that just leads us for a little bit, it's not me like midweek going, I wonder what we should talk about. There's a greater church authority that leads us and says, you know what, this is, where th- this is what thousands of people are engaging in around the world. So we just don't fly by the seat of the, our pants. There's something concrete about following a liturgical rule. And I hear of the people all the time, you know, there's this kind of new movement even in churches. Uh, I'm not religious, right? You hear this? Ever hear this? Oh, I'm just not religious. Come on, really? Right? First of all, we're all religious. Listen, most of us in this room brush our teeth and change our underwear, We're religious. We're we're religious. On my drive home here, uh, on my drive here this morning, I passed by numerous neighbors filling their cars with hockey sticks and hockey bags. And that's a passion of mine. I love that. But we're all religious. It's just, it depends on what, what we're worshiping. And I just think each week as we're led by this rule, this thing over us, that there'll be something deep and beautiful that will come because there'll be stability in an unstable world. Many of you guys know that I grew up in a very charismatic stream of the church, like the tradition of the church, and I always hear people say things like, oh man, I had this amazing encounter in like 1997 with God. It was like so amazing. It was at a youth camp. It was incredible. And then I think, cool, but it's like, it's almost 2020. Did you know that like, like, it's almost 2020. And I am all for, again, we're trying to blend the charismatic tradition of the church with a Eucharist kind of framework. But we need stability, and that's actually one of the things that the church calendar does. I think we've seen the value of these traditions coming together, and so we don't want any less of the spirit through this. I actually think as we walk through this, and this leads us, you're going to see over the next little while that as we bridge these things and we bridge them together, it will bring stability, that there's something beautiful about this. So it's a little new for us, maybe. Maybe for you that, again, grew up in maybe low, more low church evangelical um, places. I think just for the next six months, let's let the text, let's let people who have worked hard to put these things over us, over us, and lead us. You with me? Sound like fun? You're like, fun? Sure. Okay, good. All right. In that sense, if you have a Bible, if in that case, if you have a Bible and you want to open up, our text for this morning is Matthew chapter 3. I'm not going to be super long this morning, but Matthew chapter Three, Advent, Happy New Year. For most of us, we don't think of this as the new year, but for Christians all across the world, this is the beginning of a new season, a season of anticipating Jesus coming, a season where we anticipate the coming of the King. Now, the tension is, has Jesus come? Well, yeah, right? 
So we're drawn into this story every year, knowing what's happening. Like, I hate to break it to you. Most of us know, as we gather with family and friends in the church community on Christmas Eve, we know that, like, a baby is born, and he will, he will become the Messiah. He was the Messiah. So one of the things through Advent is we step in and we lean in to that Jesus is coming again. This is the Christian hope. A guy named Bob Goff, he, always, he says this, and it's stuck with me since he said it. He said, always over-communicate hope. Always over-communicate hope. That's, that's like our mission. That is my mission in this community. And there, at Advent, it's a season and time of leaning into a hope that God is going to come and he's going to make all things new. Fleming Rutledge, great gal, she says it like this. Of all the church seasons, Advent most closely mirrors the daily lives of Christians and of the church. It asks the most important ethical questions, presents the most accurate picture of the human condition, and above all, it orients us to the future of the God who will come again. Beautiful picture. Advent actually starts in silence, right? Think about it for a second. Here's Isaiah 40, just before we get to our text this morning, just to show you what the Jewish community, what Israel was longing for. If you know the story of the scriptures, they are longing for a Messiah to come and to make the world right, to set the world to rights. They're living under the uh, the oppression of Rome. They've lived under oppressors for years. And they ultimately are longing for salvation. They're longing for a good, just king to be born and to come. Most of them thought that this would be a military leader, a military ruler who would come and use the sword. But listen to the cries of the prophets. Even in the Old Testament, Isaiah 40 says this, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her her hard service has been completed, that her Her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And then listen to this. It's with emphasis on the screen, just for you, all right? A voice of one calling. Look what it says. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Crazy. This anticipation that somebody was going to come and make the way straight. Or what about this? Near the end of the Old Testament, Malachi 4, verse 5. Malachi says this, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of their parents to their children and the hearts of their children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. See, I'm going to send, God's saying, through the prophet, I'm going to send an Elijah-like figure that's going to come and prepare the way. And so, if you were a Jew, if you were a Hebrew person, all of Israel was expecting a next-to-last man. That's what they were expecting. They're waiting on the edge of their seats for a next-to-last man that would come to prepare the way for the Messiah. Malachi told Israel he'd be an Elijah-like figure, right? Keep this in your mind when we read today's text, because, man, the lights on your dashboard should be blinking then when you read Matthew and how he writes this. And Isaiah told Israel he would be a preparer. He'd be one that would prepare the way. Now, anybody have a hard time waiting? I was in Superstore the other day. Lines, like, up the aisles. It's crazy. Um, I, I know you're probably impatient like me. But for 400 years, there's nothing. Silence. They're waiting for a long expected Messiah, and it's just quiet. Advent actually starts in silence. 
It starts from a posture of waiting and longing and in the quiet. And then we get to today's text, Matthew 3. It says this, Matthew now, remember, is writing to a Jewish community, a very Jewish audience. And I just want to break it to you. All of his writing here as he compiles this and as they would edit this and scribes would put this together, all sorts of Jewish charged imagery that if you were a Jew hearing this would just like blow your mind. Listen to this. In those days, verse 1, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah and then an exact quote of what we just read. Here it is. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now, you may be thinking, man, 21st century, a couple thousand years later, like, okay, I get it. I get the flannel board. John came before Jesus. Let's go home. But if you're reading this in the first century as a Jew, even to hear the word wilderness that Matthew puts in here is much more significant than we know. Because wilderness, when, when Matthew uses that word wilderness, it's way more than a geographical identifier. Wilderness, in the language had all sorts of prophetic themes for Israel. Think about it. In the wilderness, Israel began its existence as the people of God. And when you pick this up, you're like, whoa. First of all, there's a genealogy that starts Matthew, just like Genesis has a, a beginning. And now you're beginning to see that Matthew, as this good Jewish writer, is trying to tell us something. And what he's trying to tell us is that the Messiah is on the scene and that this is the new exodus. What we're reading here is the new exodus. That this is a hope of a new exodus that led the prophets thousands of years ago to speak of a wilderness or a place that would have a new beginning. And so just as the gospel started with a genealogy, now we're getting to see that there's this, there's this exodus language around this. There's prophetic imagery here that Matthew is trying to get us to see. And Jesus says it, or John the Baptist says it. He says, turn your lives around. Turn, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Basically, his essential message was turn your lives around. The kingdom of heaven is coming. Craig Keener puts it like this. I'm, sh I'm sure he's a keener. He's a scholar, and he's a keener. Hey, you like that one? I'll be here all day. Thanks for coming. So good. He says this, the human responsibility to repent or turn around and change, no well, is not urged so that the kingdom will come, but explicitly because the kingdom is coming, whether we turn around or not. I love that. That's the picture we get. The kingdom is coming. We all have a choice of whether we're going to bow our knee to that. That is to say, he says, we do not bring the kingdom by our turning. We suffer the kingdom's coming, either blessedly by going to our knees or banefully by turning our backs. Here comes God's new world. Turn around and face it. And so the wilderness language is Jesus. John is preparing for us to see that Jesus is the new exodus. He is the one not just taking us out from like slavery, though that is a thing for Israel in the Old Testament. And obviously, to be in sin is to be in bound, obviously. But there is something greater. There's something beautiful and big happening as John prepares the way. And then he says this verse, then it says this verse 4. Matthew says, John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. Again, emphasis here on the screens. His food was locusts and wild honey. Why would Matthew even care? Who is this? If you know your Bible, it's just reinforcing that this is an Elijah-like figure. 
that this, this is actually, Elijah was described in the scriptures as a, as a hairy man. Any hairy man with me? Come on, somebody. No, no, none of you. None of you will admit it, all right? With a leather belt around his waist, Matthew right here is picking up exactly on Elijah. He's trying to get us to see clear as day that this is the one that's going to point to the Messiah, that this is the one that the prophets have spoke about over and over, that an Elijah-like figure would come and would prepare the way. Verse 5. It says this, people went out from him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. They were confessing their sins and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. By the way, baptism was not mutually exclusive to Jesus. It's for another day. Verse 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance and do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, um, and some people think that where Jesus was in teach, teaching this and saying this, it was actually tombs. Stones is probably better as like gravestones. God can raise up the children of Abraham. The ax is ready at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. For you and me, Gentiles, years later, this may not, like, we may not feel the weight of it, but the Pharisees, as you know, were super conservative Jewish folk. Many of them, obviously, in the Sanhedrin, they kind of, many of them ruled kind of the political way in which Israel would function. And then you have the Sadducees, who were kind of the servants of the modern world. They were practitioners. And Jesus is saying, write to these folk that your religion and what you do, and even thinking that you're just part of this covenant with Abraham without faith, this doesn't save you. Just, it's crazy. I mean, we don't feel the weight of this, but as a first century Jew, he basically hearing Jesus say, just because you have Abraham's blood f flowing through your veins does not mean that the kingdom of God has drawn near to your life. Isn't that crazy? That there's something bigger going on. They, they took, these Sadducees and Pharisees, these folk took extreme comfort in their relationship through Abraham, but Jesus says true repentance comes and it bears fruit. That it's about a yielding, a turning of the, it's about allegiance. It's about giving, giving our lives to the way of Jesus. And this is what the preparer said. Listen, this isn't about me. This is about the one who's coming. Verse 11, he says this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will be clear, uh, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Crazy that in all the Gospels, that there's this clear emphasis that the reason in which Jesus embodied flesh and blood to come to the earth is that he would baptize us in the Holy Spirit. Now listen, we have all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of different experiences with this and traditions, and I get it. I, I know even when I use the word charismatic, it's like a bag of tricks for some of us. And you, like there's stuff from your past where it just conjures up things. But all four Gospels make the same claim, that Jesus came to immerse us and baptize us, to purify us, to make us fully human, to burn away the things not of him, and to baptize us in the Spirit. And in the Old Testament, the prophets, I mean, in the days of the prophets, the Holy Spirit only came on certain people at certain times and in certain places. And now the radical change in this whole thing, this is why, for me, 
The idea of the Holy Spirit is not connected to a denomination. I just don't care. I just would really encourage us to read the scriptures. We cannot live this life without the Holy Spirit. And this is the thing that the, God has come through Jesus, is to empower us and baptize us. And now this call for us is available to everyone who would hear. Not just the spiritually elite, not just the people of old at certain places and certain times, but this would be available to all of us. John is pointing to the one who would come. And so during the season, there's a longing for that. But it's also crazy that even at Advent, and I get the whole posturing ourselves through the church calendar and living out the story and being participants. I, told, I get all of it, being participants in the story. But I think some of us forget at this time of year that the Holy Spirit is available to us right here and right now. And this is, the pro- this is one of the promises of Advent. We long for the coming of Jesus. So we prepare our, ourselves for December 25th. And some of us do this with our kids and we, we get ready and we, we prepare. We also prepare and long and hope for the coming of Jesus who would come and renew and set the captive free and bring his healing reign to this world and set, set people free and wipe every tear away. But also in the in-between, Jesus is the one. John has pointed to him. This is the one who will baptize, who can do far greater than I can. He's gonna give us his spirit. He's gonna give us God's spirit that would indwell within us. Now for the disciples, if you skip ahead, it seems so confusing because they're longing and hoping and waiting, just like their ancestors were for years, hearing, these, hearing Isaiah being read and hearing these promises that a Messiah would come. And then he comes, he reveals himself to these, these disciples. And you know on the day of ascension, he ascends. And you've got to imagine what's going on in his brain, these, these disciples' brains. The one they've given their lives for is now leaving them. Like, I know we know the end of the story, so we pick it up, we kind of know. But in that moment, I think it would be disturbing to see somebody that you've laid, you've basically given up your lucrative fishing business, you lay your life down and you follow him, and now he's out of here. But think about it. God always knew through Jesus that the plan was, Jesus was only in one place at one time. But the way in which he could be everywhere all the time was by his spirit. It's actually better that Jesus immerses and baptizes us in his spirit because now on mud hut floors around the world, in cathedrals, in high churches and low churches, in house churches, in warehouses, in mega churches, in a little facility, downtown London, Goodwill Industries on a cold morning in December, all of us have access to this. And I think as we talk about Advent, we just have to be reminded, in and through all our longings for Jesus to renew the world, we actually have access to him right now. Do you know that? And that's just honestly, just what I want to leave us with. So we take a moment to close and to press in just for a few moments this morning in worship. May we just be reminded, you and I, as we come to the table, that we have access to God. John pointed to Jesus and said, this is the one that's going to baptize you in the spirit. Well, let's just, what if we're just, as a community, just really open to receiving that, to receiving the spirit this morning? Advent 2019, this posture of a heart. Yes, we long, we long for renewal, but there's some things that are access to us right now.